The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. This episode has two segments. In the first, I interview Peter Moshe, an audio engineer who worked on Dream Streets They Don't Understand from the Pokemon 2000 soundtrack. In addition to providing details regarding the recording session, we also discuss some of the many acts he's worked with over the years. Our second segment is an archival interview with Mark Chait, co-writer of The Power of One, also from Pokemon 2000. Like Peter, Marcus had a long and storied career, so it should be an interesting listen. Thanks. So, folks, before we start the interview, there is a little bit of sad news i got to put right up here at the front. Earlier this summer, Chris Truesdale, one of the members of Dream Street, uh, very sadly after a bad case of COVID-19, passed away in early June. Uh, just before he would have turned 35, and, and the band did a little, you know, mini online reunion, stuff like that. But uh, it is a cruel reminder that life is not fair, and of course, we're dedicating this interview to him, uh, his fans, his bandmates, his family, all that stuff. Uh, hope, best wishes, given the circumstances. Hi, folks, Stephen here. I'm on the phone with Peter Moshe. He's an audio engineer. He does a lot of audio work for music and uh, maybe a few other things. But uh, as far as Pokemon goes, he did the audio engineering for the recording session of They Don't Understand by Dream Street, which, of course, was on the soundtrack to Pokemon 2000. And we're going to talk about that as well as his more recent work and his, really his whole career, which is very interesting. He's worked with some, some really interesting folks uh, over the years. But... Peter, why don't you go ahead and start off at the beginning? Uh, where are you from originally, and how did you get into uh, doing music? Uh, hi, everybody. I was uh, I started uh, growing up in California, out in the San Fernando Valley and Hollywood area, and being a musician myself uh, when I was younger, I got very into the technical end of it early on. I worked in music stores as a kid because I would hang out in them and take uh, lessons at the music stores and waiting for my mom to pick me up and my dad to pick me up. Uh, I spent so much time in the music stores fiddling around with all the stuff that they had. Uh, I ended up working in a music store at a very young age and uh, that kind of progressed into doing more technical things where I went into working in recording studios and kind of pushed my playing to the side and uh, really fell in love with doing audio recording and stuff like that. And uh, then it slowly went into working with a lot of particular bands, going on the road with them as well, helping them to uh, kind of duplicate the records that they were making live. So in being an audio engineer out on the road. So I gravitated towards that and it's been a great career for all these years. I've worked with, countless bands that uh, many people might know. And, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I think one of the, the big ones is actually uh, Hall and Oates, which I'm sure most folks have at least heard of if they're not exactly familiar with who that is. How did that one come about? Well, after many years of being traveling with bands on the road, you meet a lot of other bands. I had you know, traveled around with lots of bands over the years, the group Journey, the Cars, uh, Manilow, groups like Quiet Riot, Hard Rock groups, Kenny Loggins. Over that traveling time, you meet lots of other people. Well, in the travels, I met some of the guys in the Hall & Oates band, and they needed somebody, and I fit the bill, and started working with them back in 1987, and uh, have still, all the way till now, I still do work with them. They're out there actively always touring and recording, and we started this show about 11-plus years ago called Live from Daryl's House, which is an online live musicians playing in Daryl's house. And we started this show online and that's kind of become its own thing. Uh, you can go see it on the web. It's everywhere on the web at uh, live from Daryl's house.com. Also anywhere on YouTube. If you just type in Daryl hall, you'll see the show. There's nearly a hundred episodes of the show out there, you know, where he plays with all sorts of bands. I mean, New bands of today, new bands of yesterday. So we've been streaming that show on the internet since since about dial-up ended and we had DSL. As soon as we got enough bandwidth to be able to put video with the audio, we were doing it and we've been doing it ever since and we've spawned off into having a live uh, musical restaurants with live music in them called Daryl's House Club. And uh, I run those places now where we have music every day of the week, live music and great food. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has helped you out this year. You've been uh, very ahead of the curve with some of your knowledge there, and it's really paid off this year. We'll talk maybe more about what you're doing uh, more recently, a little bit later in the interview, but since a lot of folks may not be familiar with what goes in on the technical side of doing a recording, can you sort of briefly describe what your responsibilities are on a typical studio recording? Um. Well, once the song's written, that song was written by Steve Diamond and Robbie Neville, two songwriters themselves, they'll sketch out the song. Generally, they might sketch it out either on an acoustic guitar, piano, whatever their instrument is. And then, like the two guys will get together maybe and finish off the arrangement of the song, just how it'll basically go. Then you got to go into the studio, which now is your laptop or even your iPad or your phone. But we would go into the recording studio and put down all the individual instruments with that's like the drums, the bass, the guitars, the vocals, uh, backing vocals, all that kind of stuff. And you do it either all at one time in part or in pieces. So, for instance, like the guys, they would record their vocal parts. Usually we would put them in the same room divided with some sound treatment, sound baffling between them. And they would sing their parts kind of all down together. And sometimes maybe if somebody messed up a lyric or this and that, we'd go back and fix it. That's the general idea of how you would try to do it. A lot of the instruments would be pre-recorded. That would be done before you would do the vocals. Uh, that's kind of how it goes. You would put the instrument track down and then do the vocals generally last. Then after that comes the mix down process once everything's done the mix down process is separate and generally the mix down process is done within a day 
and you really focus on making it sound the absolute best it can. Okay, that's a great overview. So how did you wind up working on They Don't Understand then? You talked a little bit about the, the writing team. Did they happen to just fall in your lap there, or were they in the orbit of certain people? How did that come about? Yeah, they were in orbit. Both Steve and Robbie Neville were, at the time, working with Daryl Hall, or Hall and Oates, both Hall and Oates, and um, was working on those records at the same time. So when this project came up, all the people that were working on this project as well. Uh, you know, I just happened to be working on their other projects as well. So, of course, you know, the man in the room gets the gig, and uh, I just moved over to that project that day. So, you know, at that period of time, every single day was a new project, whether it was the Dream Street project or I, the time I was working with Mariah Carey or Daryl and John. There was always something going on every day at that point in time. It was a big music machine in New York City at that time. Yeah, yeah. New York always pretty much known for its music, but especially busy then and, and, and largely now as well. All right, well, what did you know about Pokemon when it came in? Uh, you seem to have some familiarity, but you definitely were not in the age demographic uh, for the franchise at the time. What did you know about Pokemon? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I've been in Japan so many times, and Pokemon was I mean, it's huge all over the world, but especially in Japan. So I had seen it quite a lot. And some of the guys, uh, I, Steve had kids, and uh, many of my friends had kids. So it was definitely around big time at the time, um, always around. And Nintendo was so big at the time, too. So everybody, I think, was aware of it at the time. So you, you actually had some uh, some decent knowledge, which is, you know, a little different. We always hear those stories with, you know, Donna Summer or even more recently with Bill Nighy and some of the other folks on Detective Pikachu. But you seem to have sort of an inside track, so you kind of knew what you were getting into. That's pretty neat. Yeah, there was also, at that period of time, a lot of people in the music industry starting to work on music specifically for video games and stuff, because video games uh, at that time were starting to become a really ingrained, not only in you know, culture, but it was big business and people wanted to up the quality of the audio and the music on video games then and get just like this custom songs put in, uh, new and popular songs put in. So it created a whole industry in the recording world and now it's a big part of the uh, video game industry. Okay. Well, going back to They Don't Understand uh, and the recording session for that, obviously you had uh, there were various instruments in there. And, of course, there were the, the five guys. Uh, they were really kind of like late middle school, early high school back then in 2000. But uh, they were coming in to do their vocal parts. Uh, one interesting thing, you had mentioned uh, the, the kid that uh, Steve Diamond had. Cole Diamond is listed as a song inspiration for They Don't Understand. Uh, I don't know exactly what happened there. It sounds like he probably uh, was talking with his dad and said something along the lines of, hey, you could rework this into a Pokemon song, why don't you? And, and somehow that, that all went through there. But there are two versions of the song. How did that kind of affect the, uh, the recording process? Yeah, what happens during the recording process is when you're doing one, at least uh, at that time, it was kind of the start of the period of where people would think about doing multiple versions of the same song. Because if you would do a pop version of the song, 
um, at that time, there was a lot of hip hop going on, a lot of rap going on, a lot of different versions, a lot of electro dance music going on at the time. So when you're doing the song, you would immediately think like, hey, would this song work as like a dance club song? Could you speed it up? So we would always think that way. And we would take those original tracks that were recorded, maybe just the vocals, and get it together with a person that would do more dance-oriented tracks and let them change it up into maybe a different version of the song. Very common. It keeps the cost down, too, because you've already kind of got the song already laid out and the vocals done on it. And you can take those things and just add different music to it and make it a new song. And, and how did that exactly play out here? There are about half a dozen lines that are different between the two versions of the song. Basically, it just kind of re- the other version removes all the Pokemon references and replaces them with more relationship-based stuff. Did you have to like record it through like both times, or did you record the lines that were different uh, separately? How did that work for this session? Yeah, we would generally um, do alternate takes and have some alternate version lines in there and keep them separate, just like you would do maybe in a, a song that has cursing in it. You would separately record those so you could do a separate mix with those uh, vocal lines in it. And back then, the music was recorded digitally back then, so it would be easy to splice them in. Yeah, I figured you might want to save a little work there and not have to go through. You might do maybe the line before that and the line after it to sort of make it feel more more natural. But it sounds like you wouldn't record like the whole thing, right? Yeah, maybe not the whole song. We would just pick the lines, but you would always just record the whole line, you know, not just pop in a word. Um, you'd record a whole new line because a lot of times you'd have to change the way you would phrase it or something like that. It just depends on what you're trying to do. Gotcha. All right. Well, do you have any other particular memories of the recording session? Uh, I know you were kind of in a separate room from the uh, performers and whatnot because you had to monitor the levels and things like that. But any other particular memories from that session? Oh, yeah. We definitely spent time hanging out and talking. They were very interested in hearing because they knew about the group Hall & Oates and they were interested in talking about Mariah Carey at the time and all the different projects and asking about Artists always kind of like to ask about the other people you're working with, and they're always interested in hearing stories about it. So I don't remember exactly specifically what we talked about, but I do remember that we were sitting around. And since they were young and they were always interested in the music, of course, because they were musicians, I'm sure we were telling stories about I was telling them about things that were going on and working with other artists at that time. I just remember they were just such great kids, man. They really were. And we always had a blast. And I saw them for multiple days, actually, because I was working in the same studios. And so they were still in there doing stuff, working on other songs at the time. It was always fun working during those that era of time. All right. Well, obviously, it's been you know 20 years since that was recorded. You've done a ton of stuff since. Uh, what's some of the stuff you've been working on more recently? Well, we have our venue that we work on. We have our Live from Daryl's House TV show that we've been doing for 11 years now. Um, We have a couple of uh, music and restaurants, music venues and restaurants, uh, Daryl's House Club in upstate New York here, where I'm at now. And we stream our live shows five nights a week, usually. So you can see a lot of the stuff that we're doing already on the web. 
So you can watch. It's kind of like peeking into a club that has lots of live music. And it's super high quality going out. So you're watching music being played live by musicians, great bands. We always have great bands five nights a week. And uh, we have lots of music up there. And we just like to keep the you know, mu- music world alive out there and just you know, expose it to people. Hey, folks, quick interruption here. As you can probably guess, COVID-19 has virtually shut down the music industry. Anything you can do to help musicians, writers, and other workers is greatly appreciated. And, and yeah, like we said earlier, you had some experience that really has paid off uh, given the current circumstances, which are unfortunate, but you've managed to uh, adapt uh, relatively well. Uh, you mentioned the, the Facebook for uh, Daryl's House and whatnot. Do you have any uh, social media or website you want to, that's, that's for you specifically? Uh, you know, I don't really have, I mean, I have my own webpage, mypetermoshe.com, but it's, you know, I'm an extension of the artists I work with, and I have been absolutely blessed to have worked with all the best artists in the world. I mean, I have done hundreds of thousands of records over the years and shows and traveled the entire planet numerous times. And, uh, you know, I really like to be seen through the artists I work with. Mm. You know, I am an extension of the people I work with and, you know, I am not the artist. I like them to be the artist. I like to enhance what they do. I love for people to go to our webpage, our Daryl's house club, Facebook page, and just check out some of the bands. I, I engineer and record and do the video production for all of the uh, the bands out there. And you're going to be amazed. I guarantee people will find a new band that you didn't know about that you'll love. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been great having you on, Peter. Thanks for having me. This has been Stephen Reich. All right, folks, thanks. Originally written for the 2000 Olympics, the extra mile predictably includes a large number of sports-related phrases, including references to races, archery, and recognition for one's personal feats. While Sydney wasn't in the cards for this song, it did manage to find a home on the Pokemon 2000 soundtrack, and it's easy to see why. In addition to the events of the movie drawing a large amount of attention, Ash is required to traverse rocky terrain, put his faith in a pair of wings, and perform other feats in order to fulfill his role. You could even consider the shrine where the ritual takes place to be a podium of sorts, or the artifact where the stones are put to be some sort of trophy case. The song doesn't solely focus on the hero, though, as during the second verse, assuming I'm interpreting it correctly, the lyrics acknowledge the contributions of others that allowed the leader to achieve their goals. In the original use case, that was probably coaches, teammates, and family members, but in the movie, you could certainly apply it to Ash's Pokemon and traveling companions. No chosen one does it alone, after all. Anyway, if you'd like to know more about this song, I have an interview with co-writer Pam Shane linked in the episode description. Thanks. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich, here at the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Mark Chait, who co-wrote the Power of One song from the second Pokemon movie. But Mark, before we get into that, uh, why don't you start at the beginning? Uh, how did you get involved in doing music? Well, I grew up in South Africa as uh, a child prodigy of music. I actually have a master's of piano performance and violin. So I was an early starter to music. 
And classical music, I actually represented my country at 15 years old, so I traveled the world as a classical musician. So I, I was a very early starter. So that was your education in music. How did you get involved in the music business itself? Well, I actually went to Columbia University for five years, and when I was in New York, I started playing around with film music, and I had met a lot of people in the industry who forwarded my music to Los Angeles, where I met a lot of film producers who saw that I had a talent for doing film scores. And so that's how I originally started, and that was Steven Seagal, the actor, who actually gave me a big piece of music to write for a film that he ended up not doing. And basically, that's how I ended up having a big, large orchestra score that ended up in my first film, which was 1992, in a small short film for Sony Pictures that had Brad Pitt starring in it. And uh, it was a very interesting way of entering the film business. What were some other uh, pieces you worked on during the 90s? Um, I wrote a lot of film score music in the style of Ennio Morricone because the first film that I did um, that actually went to the Oscars for Best Live Action Short was a film that Morricone was going to do. He told Sony Pictures and Studios that they would have to wait nine months. And so the director wanted somebody who could do him. So when I first started, uh, a lot of the film music that I wrote for the various films that I did work on in the 90s were of that genre, the very melodious, uh, similar orchestration pieces. And, you know, I also wrote a lot for piano and violin, but they weren't published at that point. So I just mainly did my work for film score music. And this is way before I started doing songs for films. So what eventually led to you doing vocal songs? Uh, how did that get started? Well, there was a lot of interest from record producers, actually, uh, like David Foster, and I worked with Charlie Midnight, who said that my music has uh, a very good song quality and we should try and put vocals to them and see how I am writing songs. And I wasn't sure that that was the way I wanted to do it, but I nevertheless tried it, and I found that... I, I had a good talent for summing up a, a feature film in four minutes in a song. And and uh, I originally started working with Randy Goodrum, who wrote a lot of hits in the 90s as well. And he took me under his wing like a lot of other uh, film composers did as well. Nice, nice. So let's move on to The Power of One then. Do you know, how did you get chosen to uh, work on this project? Well, I had met the head of music at Warner Brothers at the time. Uh, he still is, actually. Um, and a very nice uh, man who was a fan of my music. And he said, we're doing this film about Pokemon. Do you want to have a look at the film and see if you can come up with an idea? And I did. And then I invited Merv Warren to join me in co-writing the song. And basically, that's how it got started. Okay, and so what was the, the writing process like? Uh, did it come together quickly? Did it take a lot of time? How did that come about? Well, the first draft came about pretty quickly, like they always do if you're a, a musician and an artist, you understand these things come quickly. And then there was a lot of time involved in changing things and producers involved. And, you know, the lyrics, I would say, is much, was much harder than the music. 
the music took about two weeks to come together. But then we had to actually find the correct lyrics that matched the movie, and that was about a three-week to a month process. That was a very painstaking process to get that correct. And um, I loved working with Merv Warren. He's a fantastic uh, songwriter. And we, we, uh, we really enjoy the process, and I think that's the key to writing a hit song. No, it definitely uh, made quite an impact, uh, very memorable. Um, are there any particular lyrics that you're particularly proud of or have an interesting story behind them? Well, the obvious one is the one that, uh, that everyone talked about with Herman Cain, that uh, it inspired a lot of people in avenues that I never thought was even possible. You know, the opening four lines, I think, uh, are the ones that are mostly used even to this day. Life can be a challenge. Life can seem impossible. It's never easy when so much is on the line. I think those lines pretty much say a lot. No, absolutely. No, that is, I mean, anyone can relate to that. We've all had times in our lives that are like that. Now, you did mention, of course, uh, Herman Cain. Uh, for those who aren't aware, about four years ago, he was a politician running for U.S. president, and he sort of misattributed your song. He thought it was from the Summer Olympics and didn't realize it was actually a Donna Summer song. So, um, you know, first of all, how did you find out that that had happened, and what was your reaction there? Well, it, it was very easy to find out because it was all over the press all over the world. And to be honest, it was at the Olympics, but it wasn't part of the Olympics. NBC would cover the Americans during the Summer Olympics, and at the end of every day, they would have the outtakes of all the events that occurred during the Olympic Games. And the song was perfect for covering that. So the song was used many times by NBC to cover the Summer Olympics. It wasn't the official song of the Olympic Games, but um, the confusion was pretty easy to make. Did it make you feel, was it funny when it happened? Uh, did it make you feel like you had created something that was really memorable? Well, as, as any artist would tell you, any, any artist would be delighted that anyone would be talking about their work. Uh, negative or positive, that's not for me to say. But the fact that it inspired a conversation on a level for the presidency of the United States, were, it was tickled me, to, you know, let's like say tickled me pink. It really uh, created a, 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 a very warm feeling in me that somebody would use something that we created to further their career and, and use it as an example of of, I think, the courage within themselves. So anytime anyone uses a song, it's always wonderful. I had a similar experience with Hillary Clinton when she was at a dinner in New York for the Democrats, and they chose my song, The, the Power of One, and I got to perform it, actually, with a wonderful singer from Broadway, Lilius White. And the same thing, it sparked a whole conversation. At the end of the performance, Hillary Clinton walked on stage, smiled, grabbed my arm and said, Mark's already summed up my entire speech in that song. So anytime anyone uses a song for that, for that purpose that, that you create as an artist, it's a wonderful thing. Now, just to clarify, that thing with Hillary Clinton, was that before or after the Herman Cain thing? That was before. It was before, yes. That is absolutely fascinating. Uh, I love hearing the, that type of story. You've really shed a lot of light. I mean, we knew a fair bit about it, but you've really um, put in some interesting details. Really glad to have that. 
All right. Well, you know, since you did that song, you've had quite a long career after that. In fact, currently you're actually working in China.、Uh, how did that come about? Well, three and a half years ago, I was invited to score a live—you can call it a musical—but it was actually the largest multimedia event in the world. It was called Illusions, just outside of Shanghai, and they had five composers who failed at. Doing the test because the whole show was told through music, and there wasn't any language, and it was a very big task. They had five Chinese composers who wrote basically Chinese music, and what they really needed was Lord of the Rings, 400-piece orchestra and choir kind of thing.、Um, they had invested an enormous amount of money, much more than we would ever spend in this country, to create a show that would be on the world stage. With actors from all over the world, and when they came to Los Angeles to find composers, I had met the chairman, and、um, he fell in love with my film score and music, because it was kind of what they were looking for. It was very epic. A lot of my film scores have that epic sound with、uh, full orchestration, Prokofiev, Rachmaninoff, choir, and that's what ended up happening. And the show took a year and a half to build.、Um, the CGI for the film. Took four years to make, and it was basically a, a show on an enormous stage that was built for us, with an 180-degree screens, eight stories high, and then in front of it were 60 actors, some of them being served to Soleil and part of the New York Ballets, and that put me on the map in China. And since I had、uh, successfully completed the mission of doing a musical of such stature. I was approached by a wonderful organization where they have a collection of masters from around the world in their field, and they are partners to help better and further the the creation and the understanding of of Chinese composers. So, what else do you like about China besides getting an opportunity to work on music there? What's the what's the country like for those of us who haven't been there? Well, it's. Mostly surprising for everybody who's never been there.、Um, I've been there for four years, but it's not that I'm there full time. I'm still based in California, in Los Angeles, and I have a studio in both Los Angeles and Shanghai. And、um, what we love about China is that they are open to experimenting. The process is much—it's much more different than it is here. Here, we spend years and years planning things. There, they spend a couple of months planning things and then put it into action and see how it turns out. And for any artist, I think it's a wonderful thing to be in the sandpit of experimentation. And、um, there are amazing people that I have、uh, become connected with in the film industry and in, actually in all industries who are all part of the same consortium that we are. It's actually called the DAO, which means the way. And it's almost like a, an enormous think tank of of world leaders coming together to create something new, and I, I think it's wonderful. And、uh, the other thing that I'm going to say will surprise most people: living in Shanghai is like living in Paris and New York on steroids. It is nothing really Chinese about it, although it is China.、Um, it was actually the area that I live in、uh, is called the former French Concession, and it was built by the French. So in essence, living in Shanghai is much more、uh, enjoyable in many ways than than living in other parts of the world. 
That's really neat. So what's some of the other stuff you've worked on recently um, in, you know, either place? Uh, well, many things. Uh, one of the things that I got to really explore is that I am a concert pianist, and uh, I just have a new sponsorship by Bosendorf. So one of the things we're doing is we're doing piano performances around Asia, which is usually accompanied by the films that I have scored, and it makes for a really interesting new platform of performance. So we're doing that. I'm also writing, getting involved in films and television series in China, uh, and that's an exciting thing. And the great thing about uh, working in China is we're not only scoring for film, I'm scoring for provinces and scoring for cities. I was asked by the mayor of Shanghai to write the soundtrack for Shanghai, and that's been a year-long project. And uh, I just recently scored the Zhejiang province, which is a very wealthy province in China. And the capital of it is called Hangzhou, and it's on a beautiful lake, and the, the, the G8 summit's going to be there. So the government officials came to me, and they asked um, our studio in China, called Studio Chait, to come up with a DNA, the brand of music, that depicts what they are and how they're represented to the world. Um, this is a very large project because it involves many people and statistics and research and visuals. So um, scoring locations and cities and provinces is kind of like scoring the Olympic Games for me. In what way? Um, because it's, it's scoring the emotion that comes out of an event. And how do you feel when you go to Shanghai? And what is the essence of the Georgiang province? And, you know, because I'm good at encapsulating a four-minute song to tell you the emotion of a, of a one-and-a-half-hour film, it's a good strand of DNA that goes through everything that is associated with it. So, in essence, it's what we call music branding. Neat, neat. And you mentioned uh, you have a sort of a, a studio-type uh, establishment that you do work from. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And uh, it has a website, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Uh, well, actually, um, if you go to my website, which is um, there is a link to the Chinese studio as well. The easiest way to see what's going on in China is to Google my name, first name Mark, second name Chait, and then put the word China in, and then all the Chinese websites come up uh, in, in respect to what we're doing in China. It's really fascinating. Our, our organization is called Detao, which is D-E-T-A-O, which means it's actually pronounced Detao, which means the way. Um, and so our studio, we have a staff, we have full scoring facilities, and we just did our official launch and opening of the studio at the end of July 2015. And it's almost like a full music studio slash film scoring slash sound design studio, and we are a full music solution studio. So if someone wants to do a film and they want to have music and sound effects and sound design and all the above, we fulfill those needs. And, you know, that's kind of the way of the future. Fantastic. I, I really love that. Now, do you have any social media uh, accounts you want to plug here? Uh, why don't you go ahead and do that? Uh, well, the, the social media accounts that we have basically are um, something that I'm not sure your listeners can get onto. Uh, it's called WeChat. It's the Facebook of China, but it's actually got every application combined. Um, and our, most of our social media is, is on that. Um, but also, um, you know, I'm going to start adding things to YouTube. 
And the best way for my social media is through my website, which is markchatemusic.com. Sounds good. Been great having you on. We've learned some fantastic things, not just about Pokemon, but also about really how the, the world of music is evolving. Thank you very much, Mark. You're very welcome. This has been Stephen Reich from the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. On the phone with Mark Chait, co-writer of The Power of One Song from the second Pokemon movie. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. You know, people don't really realize how much goes into creating all those sound effects and all the treatments that you see in the video games, um, as well as the music for the stuff. I mean, a lot of times they'll pick popular songs like this in there, but you forget that all those little uh, musical interludes that are going on in the music games or in the video games, uh, all that music has to be written and created by somebody. So there's a whole large industry of people that create music specifically for video games as well as even in tv there's tons of incidental music and it's a lot just like the tv world where the tv world has incidental music which is the music that kind of plays in between things or underneath dialogue the video game world it's a it's a bit different than the the television world because you've got to create music that is kind of inspiring in gameplay. And um, there's people that are really specifically great at it. And it's become a, a very big industry for people in the audio world and the music recording world. There was also the a lot of um, people between the studios, because we were working in one room, but there was four rooms at that particular studio. So we would... Uh, you know, you'd see other artists in the room. And of course that would kind of uh, make people become friends together and talk with other artists and other musicians. And, you know, it was just a different thing or a techno dance song or a ska version, or, you know, maybe even acoustic breakdown version. So, you know, just so you could get it to more people, um, you know, and a great song will transcend in any way as we've heard in the past.